It's 6 p.m., and you're tuned to your community radio station, KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Tuesday, August 22nd, and this is the KVMR Evening News. I'm Julia Jem. The fire in Lahaina has officially surpassed the 2018 campfire in terms of fatalities, with more than 100 people confirmed dead and hundreds more still missing. The California Report brings us the details from Paradise. Then, after a look at local news and weather, KVMR's Paul Emery and hydrogeologist Steve Baker explore the most likely causes behind Hurricane Hillary. That's all before KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza speaks with producer and director Jed Reif about his 1993 documentary film, Ishii the Last Yahi. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Tropical Storm Hillary brought lots of rain to parts of Southern California. In San Diego County, that will help ease the risk of wildfires, at least in the short term. KPBS reporter Eric Anderson has more. Several rainfall records for August fell around the county. Escondido, Vista, and Cuyamaca all set records. The National Weather Service predicted rainfall totals will be the highest in the mountains, More than six inches fell at Palomar Mountain. At Mount Laguna, the recorded rainfall topped four and a half inches. Cal Fire's Thomas Schutt says the rain tamps down the risk of wildfires. Now with this this rainstorm, hopefully that will be less of a concern, but the wind can dry out our fuels very rapidly. You know, if we have a a couple of Santa Ana wind events, what are our fuel conditions going to look like? That, That has yet to be seen. Shoot says unlike spring rains, which feed plant growth, this soaking likely won't add to wildfire fuel loads. For the California Report, I'm Eric Anderson in San Diego. In the northern California town of Paradise, many survivors of the devastating 2018 campfire have been watching news of wildfires in Maui with a sense of disbelief. The blaze that destroyed Lahaina has now surpassed the campfire for fatalities, with more than 100 dead and hundreds more still missing. From Paradise, here's Jamie Jung of North State Public Radio. After playing basketball at Paradise's rebuilt recreation center, Julian Biggerstaff sat in the shade and ate a protein bar. Before I interrupted him, he'd been reading a story on his phone about how little warning people in Maui had to flee. I'm like, that's insane. Bigger staff was out of town on the day that Paradise burned, but he remembers the stories of people fleeing just minutes ahead of the flames. Another eerily similar detail about Maui, Biggerstaff says, the lack of evacuation routes. Here, you know, you only had one or two ways, either north or south, and, you know. Theirs is the ocean. There's a bunch of people jumping in the ocean. Biggerstaff, who was born and raised in Paradise, says it's just depressing to watch such a similar debacle play out. The same goes for Dave Brothers, as he waits for takeout at a Thai restaurant in Paradise. It's still a very fresh wound. Brothers is a retired fire captain and helped fight the campfire. He says the outrage in Maui over late notifications and poorly planned exit routes reminds him of Paradise. So I think when people in our community here see the stuff on the news regarding Hawaii, it really reopens those experiences. Those memories have motivated people in Paradise to donate to survivors in Maui. Dean Fender is helping collect funds for the Paradise Rotary Club. He says he knows what people in Lahaina are going through. The feeling of hopelessness and that everything is gone, including your community. Fender says the money they send will help people get back on their feet. And he says the people of Paradise are ready to share all they've learned about wildfire recovery when people in Maui are ready. For the California Report, 
I'm Jamie Jong. On Sunday, a 5.1 earthquake rattled much of Southern California. It thankfully didn't cause much damage or injury, but the quake was a reminder that a far more costly Templar can hit at any time. That got us thinking about earthquake insurance, and we found out that the California Earthquake Authority, which administers quake coverage in the state, is making some big changes to quake policies. I talked about them with Glenn Pomeroy, CEO of the Authority. Mr. Pomeroy, can we start with some earthquake insurance basics? Standard home insurance policies don't cover quake damage, but yet very few Californians have earthquake insurance coverage, and it's not required to buy in the state even if you live smack dab on top of a fault line, right? That's correct. No one has to buy a strictly voluntary, and, and uh, consequently, the take-up's pretty low. Uh, only about 10, 11% of the homes in California have earthquake insurance. Uh, that's kind of a problem when the big disaster strikes, because there's going to be a lot of uninsured loss out there. So your agency, with partners in the private insurance market, offers quake insurance policies, but you're changing them. You'll be offering a big cut in compensation for personal property loss in quakes, from $200,000 to $25,000, and you're getting rid of lower deductible rates for homes worth a million dollars or more, or that were built more than 40 years ago that haven't been retrofitted. Why is the California Earthquake Authority doing this? CA is facing the same financial challenges that the entire insurance industry is facing today with uh, cost to rebuild homes soaring. Uh, that means that therefore we need more financial capacity to protect that home uh, in case it's, it's damaged. So we were facing the, concept, uh, the possibility of having to go to policyholders and charge them a very large rate increase. Um, in order to mitigate the size of that increase, we looked at our coverages and made some strategic decisions that helped soften the blow of any rate increase that's going to be necessary. Deductibles, we have offered lower deductibles than required by state law, 5%, 10%. We have, the bare, bare minimum is 15%. But for homes in excess of a million dollars, we're saying uh, we're going to ask you folks to self-insure more of it. You can afford to, and we're trying to keep the uh, rates uh, uh, affordable for all. So homes over a million will have a, that lower deductible removed. Also homes that are pre-1980, built pre-1980, that have not been properly retrofitted. But you acknowledge that for some at least, this means less quake coverage at a higher price. Yeah, well, yes, right, for some. Uh, fortunately, not for most, but for some, that's right. Here's the thing. We took a number of strategic steps over the last couple of years to take the pressure off of rate increases. The steps we've taken most, especially these coverage modifications, uh, uh, will reduce the amount of rate increase that we're gonna need someday by 30 percentage points. So it's with the policyholders' best interest in mind that these changes were made, but that's not to say that uh, it won't be a you know, tough medicine for uh, some to swallow. All right, we have been speaking to Glenn Pomeroy, CEO of the California Earthquake Authority. Mr. Pomeroy, thanks so much for joining us on the California Report. Thank you, Saul, enjoyed it. Support for the California Report comes from Stanford Medicine, comprising its School of Medicine and adult and children's health systems, working together to advance knowledge and improve lives. StanfordMedicine.org. The James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at Irvine.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food, on the web at theschmidt.org. 
And that's the California Report for Tuesday, August 22nd. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm your host, Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day. In regional news, the union reports that tonight at 7 o'clock, the Grass Valley City Council will consider using $400,000 of general fund reserves to hire up to seven seasonal firefighters. Staff are also requesting that the council allocate a police officer during the winter to operate our vegetation management program. At the July 25th meeting, the potential implementation of a half-cent sales tax to support fire and vegetation management was discussed, and the city council had then decided not to rush the process. Instead, they chose to hold off on the November 2023 election and look at putting together a measure for the March 2024 election. Also during that meeting, Grass Valley Fire Chief Mark Butrin presented information that supported the need for increased firefighter staffing and also the addition of another fully staffed fire engine company. That's according to the City Council minutes. The estimated fiscal impact of adding seven seasonal firefighters is approximately $400,000, which is where that number came from earlier. Those funds are currently available in reserves, and the topic will be further discussed in a little less than an hour now. Turning now to a look at the regional weather forecast from the National Weather Service. In Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight, clear with a low around 59. Wednesday, sunny with a high near 85. Wednesday night, clear with a low around 63. For Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight, mostly clear with a low around 42. Wednesday, sunny with a high near 74. Wednesday night, mostly clear with a low around 46. And for Sacramento and the surrounding valley, Tonight, clear with a low around 66. Wednesday, sunny and hot with a high near 96. And Wednesday night, clear with a low around 69. And you are listening to the Evening News on KVMR. Hurricane Hillary, the first tropical storm to hit Southern California in 84 years, arrived with a brisk frame of warning and promptly flooded roads, toppled trees, and trapped vehicles. But how exactly does a hurricane like this one start, and what caused it to reach California the way that it did? Coming up, KVMR's Paul Emery and hydrogeologist Steve Baker seek to answer these questions. The Water News is sponsored by Clearwater and Filtration offering solutions for water quality, well operations, maintenance, and water storage management problems. Steve, the big news today is obviously Hurricane Hillary. Ah, yeah. I don't think there's any politics included in that name, but (laughs) we could say there is. Uh, What created this storm? Well, it all starts with the significant temperature increases experienced in the ocean waters, okay? And then at the same time, we have our current El Nino condition in the Pacific. So that combination uh, makes, you know, hotter oceans. And what does that mean? Well, that means more evaporation of ocean water that gets into the atmosphere. And what does that mean? Well, you've added a whole boatload of precipitation into those you know, water, into uh, the atmosphere, as well as a lot of energy. So generally, in California... There's this upward atmospheric motion that's not really present in the summertime, and and this upward motion forms clouds and heavy rains, things like that. We see it in the wintertime. It doesn't really exist so much in the summer, as we well know. We have a lot of blue sky days. 
but things are a little bit different this year. These easterly winds that that typically drive um, this kind of movement went away. And so because they've temporarily vanished, what's happened is there's this huge high-pressure system in the sitting right smack dab in the middle of our, our country in the U.S. And there's this low-pressure system right off the California coast. So that redirected the big winds that, that basically blow uh, eastward, and it started to blow it northward. And what happens when that occurs and there's a hurricane down in the South America or Central American area? Well, it sends it to us rather than to the ocean. That's what happened. So we developed into a Category 4 hurricane. And then within 24 hours of that that becoming a Category 4 hurricane, it hit northern Mexico, which means it hit land. And as expected, it, it weakened significantly. But still, there was plenty of water in it, and it was now called a tropical storm. And it just overwhelmed both the uh, the drainage systems that are artificial, you know, man-created, and also the natural ones. Last tropical storm? 1939. It's been a long time. And it's just such a, a rare thing to have a landfall of this sort, of this hurricane, this type of hurricane in California. Wow, that's quite a good explanation, Steve. Uh, thank you. <laughs> thank you for putting that together. Um, well, how has California been impacted by this hurricane Hillary. Well, mostly Southern California, first of all, and it's mudslides. It's dangerous flash flooding in, in, in the Southern areas. Palm Springs, we have uh, relatives down there. They were very well prepared uh, that there are many restaurants down there. Uh, San Diego was hit. The, really, the desert mountain uh, yeah, towns were, were really hit uh, big time. Palm Springs, they received half of their annual rainfall. In this one storm, that's incredible. Uh, also, they broke the record, as there were a lot of records broken. The largest amount of water, most amount of water for August 20th came in uh, in, in that area. I, I believe Las Vegas may have been the same over in Nevada. But again, the deserts got hit the most, and L.A. coastal areas, they just squeaked by. It wasn't as bad. They did get some, but of course, but not. it wasn't that bad. And we're just talking about rain. Now, there were high winds. But And those winds weren't exceedingly high, but certainly high enough to down trees, to blow carports. Uh, I heard in, in the eastern portions of San Diego, uh, carports got up, upended and blew across the neighborhoods. Things like that were happening. So, uh, you know, rainwater essentially drained off the mountain desert areas and it flowed through many of the Southern California desert towns. That's That's what happened to us in Southern California. Well, it could have been worse. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they could be. This, these kinds of storms could have been devastate, devastating to communities. Oh, absolutely. Flooding commonly costs billions of dollars in damage. So in retrospect, from what I've uh, managed to uh, find out, is the planning for this particular emergency really made a difference on, on, on these desert communities. Uh, letting the communities know early on that this was serious actually uh, caused the community members themselves, citizens, to take appropriate actions that really helped us from becoming a real critical situation. Over ten, or over 12,000 sandbags were given out to residents, and the residents filled them up, and they applied them where they needed to be applied and safeguarded many of the uh, structures that needed, needed that kind of support. Neighbors were helping neighbors who were helping seniors citizens. I mean, we're talking about a real uh, togetherness type of effort there in Southern California. So in that sense, it had a very positive outcome. 
are the Sierra foothills going to experience any difficulties as a result of this? Well, I mean, look at we've already had the worst of it past us, and I don't know, Hillary. The Hillary experience for me was actually very pleasant. <laughs> I've been loving this. It's been drizzling or light rain, uh, you know, half the day, and temperatures are dynamite out there, as everybody well knows. And they're probably going to stay with us, at least those nighttime temperatures, for a short while. Life's good in the foothills. Paul, why well, I, I enjoy living here. Even our even our wildfire vulnerability has been reduced somewhat, at least for for right now. Thank you, Steve. Ah, you bet. Managing groundwater is Steve Baker's career and passion, and that has led him into working on all water sources and supplies. This has been another conversation with KVMR's water guy, Steve Baker. You can email him with your questions at water at operationunite.co. Have you ever heard the name Ishii? Born in 1861, Ishii was the last known member of the Native American Yahi people from the present-day state of California. If you do recognize his story, it may be credited to Ishii The Last Yahi, a 1993 documentary film that worked to educate the public about California's relationship with Native Americans. Up next, KVMR's Claudio Mendoza speaks with Jed Reif, the film's producer and director, to learn more. Ishii The Last Yahi is a documentary film that tells the story of a native Californian man who, after years of hiding alone in the wilderness, emerged in 1911 near Oroville. The film debuted in 1993 and was screened in over 42 different theaters, including the Nevada Theater here in Nevada City and the Del Oro in Grass Valley. Wednesday, August 23rd, the Nevada Theater will hold a special screening. I spoke with the film's producer and director, Jed Reif. Mr. Reif, for those not familiar, tell us the story of Ishii. Ishii is a remarkable man who came out of Northern California in 1911 and challenged all notions of what indigenous people were like in Northern California at that time. Back uh, in 1850, one of the first laws passed in the state of California was for the punishment and protection of California Indians. And actually, they changed its name to the, the Act for the Protection of California Indians. But what it provided was for indentured servitude that any uh, Native American in California that was not owned or not uh, working for another white man could be taken away and made a, a property of whoever chose to take that person forcibly. This was, you know, at the same time where many Californians like Bidwell uh, up in Chico were fighting for to liberate the slaves in the South which was kind of hypocritical since he had 5,000 American Indian indentured servants for that he had taken over their village. We have this long history of California Indians being abused. And what was so unusual about Ishii was one that he came out in 1911 after over 40 years of hiding in his own territory in one of the most rugged, remote spots on earth on the side of a cliff of volcanic rock. And that's what allowed him and eight others to hide for over 40 years. In 1911, when he walked out near Oroville, he emerged there. No one on earth could speak his name. They actually brought him and put him in a cell for the insane in the sheriff's department at the jail in Oroville. And um, they brought in everybody that they could find, all the other native peoples, Chinese people, everybody they could find to try to identify where Ishii came from. And no one could speak his language. And that um, brought a group of anthropologists came down from Oroville 
San Francisco to Oroville, they were studying uh, Indian languages. And when they heard, here's a man that no one could speak his language, they sent one of their guys up, Waterman, and he actually brought Ishii down to San Francisco, where Ishii would live for the next four and a half years. When your film first came out, when it debuted in 1993, it made quite an impact. Now, 30 years later, it's being revisited. Tell me why this film is still important today. Well, people don't know about what really happened here in California. And even though my film came out then, it was really well received. We won major awards at both American Indian Film Festival, San, San Francisco, American Indian Red Earth Festival in Oklahoma. People need to be re-educated, educated over and over again. And then a new generation has come up between 1992 and then. And I'm hoping that by seeing this film and understanding our true relationship with California Indians and the history here, that it will make them think differently about it, whether it's Indian gaming, whether it's Indians in the inner city community here, and how to think about how we have, how this relationship is continually changing, how Native people are buying back their own land, and how we're going to be developing a different relationship with Indian people than we had in the past and now and in the future. And as the film's producer, what do you hope that people will take with them after viewing the film? I hope they have a new appreciation for the indigenous people that were here at first contact and that were here when we seized the state of California from them, that they learn that people need a, a lot of land to maintain a traditional economy, that they think differently about their Indian neighbors that are right here, the Nisanon, the Maidu up north, all the people, Indians of California, California still is most populated state with Native Americans in the country. There's over 108 tribes here, and they traditionally owned every single piece of this country. That's what Alfred Kroger did, the, the anthropologist. And he, um, one of the great things he did that was really right, not only was he did take good care of the issue, but he, um, he did a map of California um, that he presented at the Indian land claims in, uh, case in 1960, which established that every single piece of California was owned by an indigenous group. That it looks like, if you look at Kroger's map, it looks like a map of counties, except not counties, they're tribal areas, and they take up the entire state. There's no like part that doesn't have it. Just because you had a village site here didn't mean you need to go over there 20 miles away and hunt at a certain time of year. That's what I hope people have a better appreciation for I've been talking with Jed Reif, producer and director of Ishii the Last Yahi. He'll be celebrating the 30th anniversary of the documentary's premiere and honoring the legacy of Ishii and the Yahi people with a screening at the Nevada Theater on August 23rd at 7 p.m. Mr. Reif, thanks very much for your time. It was really great talking with you. Thank you. That's our newscast for this Tuesday, August 22nd. Head over to our website, kvmr.org, or subscribe to the KVMR News Podcast to hear more. KVMR gets support from listeners like you and 1849 Brewing Company, brewing lagers, ales, also specialty IPAs and stouts, offering a pub-style menu, weekly live music, and an outdoor patio. Open seven days a week at 11 on Sutton Way in Grass Valley. 1849brewingco.com And Four Paws Animal Clinic, 
Doctors Susan Murphy and Sue Lester and staff are proud to support KVMR, providing medical, dental, alternative, and surgical services for cherished companions. On Searles Avenue in Nevada City, fourpawsac.com. Support for KVMR's Future of Radio project comes from AJA Video Systems, empowering the next generation of local journalists and broadcasters. The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Julia Jem. Have a great night.